This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Tanya Lerman is currently the Watkins University professor in the Anthropology Department at Stanford University. She's been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and she's also been the recipient of a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship. Her newest book is entitled, When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. Tanya Lerman is a psychological anthropologist. She's been looking at American evangelicals, and her perspective is something that American evangelicals should not miss. Professor Lerman, how in the world did you come up with the idea for this project that became the book, When God Talks Back? Well, actually, I was doing a somewhat different project in Southern California, and I was at a church, an evangelical church, and talking to this young blonde woman. And uh, she said, if, if you really want to understand my church, you should have coffee with God. And I had never heard anything like that before. And, uh, and you know, she said that she talked to God over coffee every day. Um, it was clear that she regarded God as sort of as a person among people. I mean, he, it was obvious that God was big and mighty and and beyond. But he also seemed to be very intimate, and I found that fascinating. I wanted to know how people did it, uh, what it was like for them, uh, what it meant to them, that kind of Well, you define your own field as that of a psychological anthropologist, and mm-hmm. uh, you certainly demonstrate the skills of that discipline in terms of this book. But my guess is that what you're telling us is that your your first uh, interest w- was really that of a kind of an anthropological tug. You heard something you hadn't heard before, and it sounds to me like you were very curious to figure out what uh, all this means. That's right. And, I mean, the sense of how what must, must be imagined becomes real to people has just kind of tugged at me all my life. Um, I knew that some some people kind of were able to make what they imagined very available, and others were not. And, you know, and let me cl- be clear, I'm not saying that God is imaginary, but God is not visible. So if you are able to have this intimate relationship with the invisible, you've got to be able to use your imagination. And uh, I just think that that's remarkable. I want to talk about the tools of your trade here for just a moment, because I think that will help all of us to understand uh, the approach you've taken and uh, the fascinating insights that you offer in terms of, uh, of this new book, When God Talks Back. As a psychological anthropologist, your main uh, tool seems to be observation, kind of a phenomenological uh, approach to just watching what people are doing, listening attentively to what they're saying. And, mm-hmm. and and so you say in your book and in other writings, you're really not addressing the question as to whether or not God exists. You're dealing mm-hmm. with how these uh, the, these individuals you observed and the congregation in particular that you observed, how it uh, how it actually operates theologically. That's right, um, theologically, but also sort of socially and, and psychologically. So you know, the church can't determine whether God is present for somebody who says that they've experienced God. But I mean, I think that the church is better able than I am to begin to uh, come to a determination. Um, what I was able to do is to say, what, when did people say that they experienced God powerfully and personally? Um, were there different kinds of people? What kinds of practices were they doing? And what could I see about the way those practices changed them? And so, in fact, I actually included in my toolkit the methods of the psychologist. So I did, in addition to observation, and, I, you know, let me take a quick quick sidebar. I mean, I did a ton of observation. I went to church for two years in two different settings. I went to house groups and prayer groups, and um, I participated in um, sort of a prayer training process. Um talked to lots and lots of people, but I also ran an experiment in which I randomized people into prayer practice versus non-prayer practice to see if I, it, my hunches, to see if what I observed was true in that prayer practicing changed the way that people experienced themselves. 
I had been familiar with your work by uh, looking at your previous work of Two Minds. And, and when uh-huh. I saw the new book out, I actually picked it up in a Barnes & Noble in Manhattan when I was passing through. Wow. Just brand new. Just the, the, the salesperson was literally putting it on the table. And I picked it up. Wow. And I want to tell you, I was prepared to be offended. Uh, because I, I, I read a lot of anthropological work, uh, and uh, so I, I thought this is going to be condescending, but it, it's not. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate the care with which you have obviously and, and transparently sought to understand those uh, who, uh, who were, in one sense, uh, subjects of your research. Yes. Well, you talked about the thing that tugged at me, and I would say that what really tugged was that Back when I was um, a child, I grew up between spiritual traditions. So my mom is uh, the daughter of a Baptist minister, and my father is the son of a Christian scientist. And my mother sort of drifted away from the church, and my father became a doctor. And, you know, we grew up in this Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And so I saw all of these, you know, wise, good people with very different understandings of the ultimate reality. And, you know, I, I just, you know, I, and I, I don't see, I, I, I can't really imagine being sniffy about that or condescending. It just seems to me these, these profound commitments people make to the way the world is. And, I, you know, I also find something deeply moving about the religious commitment, because it's a commitment to the view that the world is better than we find it, um, and that we are transformed through that understanding. And I I just find that terribly moving. In terms of your work, you were clearly looking for a particular kind of congregation to observe. The the word evangelical is even within evangelicalism a very contested concept. But you were looking for a particular kind of evangelical. Tell us how you arrived at the congregation in terms of choosing the, the congregation you would observe for this research. So I was looking for a congregation in which God talked back, in which people had an intimate, interactive experience with God, and it felt that they knew God more or less like a person, or or at least that that was one dimension of God, their experience of God. And so I went to a number of different churches, um, and it turned out that there was a church across the street from me that was a vineyard Christian fellowship, and that was this kind of church. And in fact, the first time I went, I was kind of you know, I, I, I didn't realize that I found the church I was looking for because it wasn't dramatic or startling or, you know, nobody was speaking in tongues in the service. Um, and then for some reason I went back and I realized that this was the kind of church where people were deliberately seeking to have a back-and-forth relationship with God. When I saw that you had chosen a vineyard congregation, my first thought was, she's not going to know this isn't necessarily representative of all of evangelicalism. But you actually made that very clear. You were looking for a particular kind of congregation, the kind of congregation with a a mode of spirituality, and and I would have to say as a theologian, a theology in which there was this participatory understanding of their relationship with God that that goes beyond, uh, I think, uh, as you know, where most classically defined evangelicals would be, such things as talking about date night with God, setting up, filling, not, not only having coffee with God in terms of, of that as a metaphor, but literally pouring a cup of coffee for God, that, that's, a, that's a fairly new development uh, in a certain subculture of evangelicalism. It is. At the same time, the Pew Foundation, uh, sorry, the Pew Research Center found that something like a, nearly a quarter of Americans had a uh, renewalist um, Christianity, that they had a Christianity in which they had a direct experience of divinity. And uh, so I'm tempted to think that the vineyard experience is not that unusual. You can find the reaching for that kind of experience, say, in Rick Warren's books. You know, even though in The Purpose Driven Life, uh, Warren will say, you know, don't go after God for the experience. There's, he's also inviting you to experience God as a as a best friend. So, you know, of course you're right. It's it's um, this is one kind of evangelical experience among many of many styles of evangelicalism. Um, I think it represents a big strain in the theologically conservative commitment in Christianity. I do think it, it arises at you know, like. In 1965, during the 60s, for specific social reasons, 
um, should I say a little bit about that? Yeah, please do. It's I, I see this kind of spirituality really as coming out of the encounter of the, of the hippie Christians with um, old-time evangelical religion. And it, it, it emerged, um, I think the hippies, I think the hippie Christians play a much more important role in the history of American Christianity than many of us realize. And I think what they did was to bring... The, the thirst for experience into the center of the religious experience. And as their Christianity um, expanded, it was the Christianity that appealed to people who were very much not hippies themselves. I think the reason it's so compelling is because of what I'll call the, uh, the climate of doubt. And by this, I, I don't mean that um, Christians are necessarily struggling with doubt or even forming the question of whether they doubt that God exists. But I think it's hard in like the post-60s America to be a Christian and not be aware that there are other people who are not Christians. Well, I want to compliment the way you did that. You, you, you do take okay. your reader through a rather sophisticated understanding of how the hippie Christians became congregationalized, you might say. And, 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 and I knew she's going to go to Calvary Chapel, and there, there you did, right, to Chuck Smith, and you explained that very well. Yeah. You document the split between John Wimber and the Calvary uh-huh. Chapel movement and how you end up with the Vineyard Churches. So you really do tell that story in a way that, that helps even evangelicals, especially those who didn't live through that period, to understand something of how we arrived at this particular point. And, and then, I know you're not a theologian, but even as a psychological anthropologist, you really do get into theology. I think the most interesting part of the introduction to your book is where mm-hmm. you set the stage for this massive theological shift. I'm going to read to you from uh, from your own writing. It is indeed a striking God, this modern God imagined by so many American evangelicals. Each generation meets God in its own manner. Over the last few decades, you write, this generation of Americans has sought out an intensely personal God, a God who not only cares about your welfare, but worries with you about whether to paint the kitchen table, end quote. <laughs> I think that's true. I was um, startled when I realized just how um, personal and particular this experience of God was. And I have to say, I think it is often helpful for, to people to have such a specific and particular God, a God who knows about, you know, my kitchen table and what color of paint I'm choosing and, you know, should I, you know, should I cut my hair and where shall I go on vacation and what shirt should I wear this morning? If you're able to use your imagination specifically, then I think that that, what you're imagining becomes more available to you. And if you think about a theology, you know, not only as a way of saying, well, what's true about God, but how ca- how do people, c- how are people able to experience God? I think this very particular God enables people uh, to reach out uh, where they might be hesitant. You go on to describe the theological shift, and I, I think uh, you actually, uh, as your argument develops, get to what had to happen prior for this kind of God who's concerned about the color of your kitchen table to emerge in contemporary evangelicalism. You write, for instance, the major shift in American spirituality over the past half century has been toward a God who is not only vividly present but deeply kind. He is no longer the benign but distant sovereign of the old mainstream church, nor is he the harsh tyrant of the Hebrew Bible. He is personal and intimate. This new modern God is eager for the tiniest details of a worshiper's life. End quote. I think that's extremely perceptive, and theologians have been watching this, even as a, a psychological anthropologist has caught wind of it. That's interesting. So why do you think that that, that shift is taking place? Well, I think uh, in terms of the shift of worldview, I think a great deal of it has to do with the adaptation of uh, theism to a, a, a largely post-Christian world in terms of, uh, of the operant worldview, but I think it also has to do with this democratizing trend that is unique in, in terms of its acceleration in the United States. You, you, I, you might go back and blame Jacksonian democracy, as, uh, as for instance, some, uh, some historians like Nathan Hatch have, and you go back and say, you had a process whereby it wasn't enough for there to be a god, it has to be a personal god. And uh, so it's, it's tied with a lot of things, but I think you're also right to look at the shift to the 60s, where all of a sudden there was this enormous concern for the autonomous self, for the fulfillment of the self, for the self as a project that has to be completed, and somehow God has to be the agent of making that completion. Yeah. Yeah, that makes very good sense to me. And I I sometimes 
talk about this kind of God as the God of a, a, of a buyer's market, that um, you know people don't need to go to church anymore, at least in many parts of the country. It's a, a, one can have a perfectly acceptable social life um, without being a churchgoer. There are many different churches to choose from. There are many different ways to kind of be a religious person. And so to make God appealing, in, a, in effect, um, that God, you know, it's, it, it's helpful to have that God be the best of all possible gods, to imagine that God as unconditionally loving, as always available, and as intimately particular. Well, this theology that's of such uh, obvious concern and interest to you as an anthropologist is of, I have to tell you, very great concern to me as a theologian. And uh, deep within your book, I I think you uncover something of incredible theological significance when you write, this is on page 105, the point is that the real problem with which we all struggle is not God's judgment, but our own. God believes that we're worthwhile and loves us for ourselves. We feel shameful and unworthy because we magnify our guilt and hold ourselves responsible for our pain. I think that is a brilliant description of a huge theological shift that uh, that many pastors perceive but don't know how to name. I think you've actually named it pretty well in just that one sentence. Thank you. That's, that is really interesting. I do think that that is a terribly um, important way of thinking about sin that is that I just saw in the Church, that it was not about, you know— you've done something um, wrong, and God is punishing you, but that a shadow falls has, falls between you and God because of the way that you have been thinking. Um, and so it's also sort of a psychotherapeutic God. Absolutely. It's, it's like the God as the perfectly available psychoanalyst that you, you know, you, the, the patient, imagine in all kinds of ways, and then what you're learning is that you learn that when you, when you imagine a hostile therapist, it turns out it's your own construction. And I heard that talk about God, that when people talked about other people imagining a God that would hurt them or would punish them or would criticize them, they were meant to discover that this was their own limitation, that it had nothing to do with God. Yeah, you also make the the very interesting point that the congregation you observed had a lot of conversation about heaven, but virtually none about hell. The, the God who would judge, uh, the God who pours out wrath upon sin, that this God, to quote you, never, ever present. <laughs> yes. My favorite example of that is actually um, when somebody came to a church and gave a talk, gave a, a morning teaching, um, it, he's talked about rolling the credits in a film about Jesus' life, and he could either be there in the film or you could be on the cutting room floor. And I think that's the closest reference I ever heard on, on, on a Sunday morning to hell. And that's kind of remarkable. Um, I also didn't hear much about heaven. I, I heard a little more about heaven than I heard about hell. But it was it was as if the focus had collapsed to the present and to the kind of person you could be here and now if you chose to understand the world differently. And I imagine that that is a very big shift. I mean, you know, it seems to me to be a pretty big shift. It seems to me to be what I saw. Absolutely. Um, but the idea that, you know, that there's this external place that you will go that will torture you, that God is will, will, will make that judgment. Um, is very alien from this kind of spirituality. Well, even in the, uh, the the sources you cite in your book, we could say that this is a tremendous shift, at the very least, a shift from Jonathan Edwards to John Wimber. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that seismic in theological terms. Yes. Well, what, how do you understand its um, theological implications? I mean, I can see how it works for, for people um, as an observer. I can see it seemed to me that this way of experiencing God was actually quite psychotherapeutic for people. Um, well, I think that's part it, of, as a theologian, I have to say that that's part of the problem. I, I, I think it, it misconstrues the gospel as, uh, as psychotherapy, whereas uh, actually the, the concern should be with the God who actually exists and the God who's revealed yeah. himself in Scripture, the God who tells us that he will pour out his wrath upon sin, the God who has uh, an, an enormous... Uh, a concern for his own holiness, and, and, and a God who is going to send many people to hell. 
I understand that that uh, the congregation that uh, that you were researching uh, isn't really looking for that kind of God. My first concern is not the God we're looking for, but the God who is. And uh, and and by the way, many of the things they affirm, uh, Professor Lerman, are, are in Scripture. Many of the things they affirm are absolutely true. Uh, God is for us, but He's for us in Christ. So what's missing, I would have to say, as a Christian theologian, is is the gospel itself, which actually doesn't even appear in any meaningful form in your research. There, there is there's nothing distinctively Christian uh, in the in the theology that you uh, that you describe in terms of of those you observed other than the fact that they spoke of Jesus as, more or less, God's clearest sign that he is for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, the folks that I talked to would, would disagree. They would say that they come to Scripture, but they come to it through the Gospel, that they don't come to Christianity through Paul. And that, I mean, that, in some ways, that was what the hippies discovered, that, or what they felt that they discovered. They, they felt that they were finding Jesus the person without... This you know this growth that came yes. over Jesus called the church, and there's something very moving to that. It is true that um, somebody once sent me an article that said, you know, if you tell people that they're going to be punished, mm-hmm. they behave more responsibly than if you tell them that they're just loved. And I think that that's a deep question. I think that the you know the vineyard, uh, the church where I was spending time, would respond, look. What we want is to get people into the door to church. And, you know, people are not going to get there if you offer them the God of Jonathan Edwards. Well, you know, that's really interesting and uh, maybe a topic for another big research uh, project for you to undertake, because the churches that in many ways are growing the fastest right now are the churches that are really preaching a Jonathan Edwards-like theology, although without uh, uh, the... uh, the, the period accoutrements, <laughs> you know. In other words, it's a, it's an it's an updated in terms of style reassertion of the same thing. You know, when uh, when I hear the kind of hippie uh, model of of Christianity you're mentioning, and and that's juxtaposed with Paul, I just want to come back and say, you know, this reminds me of something. This is going to be an odd theological source for me to quote here, okay. uh, but it reminds me of Christopher Hitchens, who said huh. that the the people who speak that way obviously haven't actually read the Gospels. Because Jesus has far more to say about hell than Paul, and, and so again, that's a, that's a, just a very interesting model. But it's it's uh, it's an indication of a theological truncation, which uh, which I think is is actually very very dangerous. Well, I mean, how much does Jesus actually say about hell? He spends a lot of time casting out demons, and the church would the churches where I spent time would be comfortable with that idea. Although it's true. That the you know the idea of demons is more salient to some members in the church than others, and so they would push back and they would say, "Look, when you look at the Gospels, what you see is somebody who is insistent upon God, somebody who deals with demonic presence, and somebody who says, follow me.' But you see, part of the burden of the of the Gospels is to put upon you the the follower." the judgment of what it is to follow to, to follow Jesus. And that, fact, again, that's fascinating. It's just not actually the Gospels. I mean, where you have Jesus say, fear not the one who can destroy the body, but he can destroy both body and soul in hell, whose parables repeatedly go to judgment with uh, sheep and goats uh, and with warnings that there will be an enormous fire in which most will be destroyed. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, the, the, Jonathan Edwards is actually more in the Gospels than the, the hippies you, you talked about. And by the way, I think someone like Chuck Smith understands that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons sure. why, you know, in terms of Calvary Chapel, uh, it's a very different model than the Vineyard Church that, uh, that you observed. For some time now, theologians and other observers have noted this massive theological shift that has taken place, not only in the American mind, but in the American church. But now along comes an anthropologist to add this kind of ammunition to our understanding of what has really happened. The transformation of the concept of God, not only in terms of a secular culture, but also, given the psychotherapeutic revolution and the rise of the notion of the autonomous self within many evangelical churches as well, to a greater and lesser extent, But this theological transformation has affected virtually all of American Christianity.
I want to shift to something else, if I might, here. Mm-hmm. And, and that's uh, your particular work and, and the storyline of your book. And, and I, I want to give due credit to your argument and observations here because I, I think uh, those of us who are evangelicals would do well to read this kind of work and, uh, and learn about ourselves, at least in terms of how we are perceived by others. You talk about, uh, for instance, a theory of mind, and, and you suggest okay. that that what characterizes those you researched is that they have developed a theory of mind that you contrast with a decidedly secular mind. So I think that to take seriously the way of understanding God in the churches where I spent time, you need to accept the idea that God can speak into your mind and is, and is a, in effect an actor in your mind. Um, that when you have a conversation with God in your mind, it's not just your own fantasy. You're not just imagining it, um, but there's actually a, a presence that you're interacting with. And that's very different from the way that many Americans imagine their minds. I think we, uh, many Americans are invited to experience their minds as uh, cut off from the world, mm-hmm. as being private, as having their own thoughts. I mean, the the way that psychologists would use theory of mind is to describe children who are able to infer that other people have minds and they may not think in the same way that they do and that other people can't read their minds. And so to take seriously God's ability not only to read your mind but to be in your mind, you have to think about your mind quite quite distinct, quite differently. Well, that's that's the argument that I found very very interesting in, in terms of the, uh, the the psychological anthropology here. You're suggesting that this theory of mind that explains how children come to understand that people think differently than they think, so they understand that their thinking is distinctive to themselves. You're arguing that these evangelicals of of your research understand that most of the people around them don't think this way, and so they have to intentionally train their minds to think in such a way that it makes uh, continual sense that there is a God who loves us and has a relationship with us and and speaks to us and, as you said, is concerned about the color of of our kitchen table. Yes. I mean, I think that intuitively, um, and this is is sort of a lesson of of, um, evolutionary psychology, we all assume that, you know, there might be invisible agents in the world sort of as as an initial default – but to take seriously that your daydreams are not just daydreams, but also sort of participating in the world outside, I saw that that was hard for people to adapt to at first. And so people would come into the church and they would say things like, gee, you know, I don't know how to talk to God. Or, you know, somebody said that, he, you know, he, he counseled many newcomers to the church, and they would say, well, you can, can you say this to God for me? And he would respond, well, you should talk to God yourself. And they, they would say, but, but God doesn't talk to me. And so they had, people had to learn how to, in effect, hear God in their own thoughts and in their own daydreams. And they had to learn how to construct a conversation with God that they found to be plausibly a conversation with the Creator. And it wasn't as if people let go of the awareness that this might all be, you know, if they have a conversation with God and God says, wear the blue shirt. They People do a lot of things to let me know or to signal that they know that this might be just, you know, their own uh, their own thoughts. And that, that, and people would sometimes gossip about other people in the church, and, you know, oh, she thinks that God says this to her, but I don't know, I don't think that's God. Um, but it's, but, it's a pra- but people had to learn a way of thinking and a way of experiencing their own thoughts to, in effect, give themselves the room to experience uh, a participation with, with, with God. Now, you have another profound theological insight. When you go to uh, the distinction you make between faith and belief— and uh, the way you define faith is, uh, is, is actually, I think, uh, by and large, the way that most classical evangelicals would understand both faith and belief. But you make very clear that for the research subjects of, of your concern here, belief was very much an individual choice, and it was uh, facilitated by an intentional change in what we might call the habits of the mind. And, mm-hmm. and that then led to all the other things, and yet you go to a very interesting source, and, and, and one certainly identified with a more classical model of, of uh, Orthodox Christian theology in this respect. You go to C.S. Lewis, 
and, mm-hmm. uh, and his essay, Let Us Pretend. And so what, what you argue there is that uh, amongst uh, six different coping mechanisms you talk about or, or developmental uh, uh, tools that uh, these evangelicals use to facilitate their worldview, you talk about the idea that, uh, that using uh, Lewis's understanding of Let Us Pretend – they would enter into certain religious practices such as certain forms of prayer as if they believed in order to believe. Yes. I think that uh, Lewis has been immensely important. I suspect that um, you I mean, I'm, you must be right that he is used in different ways by different people and read in different ways by different people. But absolutely, I thought that this church was, was uh, encouraging people to embraced the let's pretend as a means to experience as real. And that was the reason for the props and the going on date with God. Um, so that when somebody was going on a date with God, you know, there was a way in which she was understanding herself as pretending to go on this date. Um, if she only bought one sandwich. But the fact that she was able to feel giddy and excited and to have this conversation, I think allowed her to give more, um, you know, allowed her to take more seriously the presence of God as, a, as an interlocutor. And I also think that it, when you make this imagined experience so real, I sometimes call this hyper-real, it allows people to um, emphasize the practice and emphasize the paradox and not fret about what's exactly true or false. And I know that that can, that can uh, sound sort of terrible to a theologian. I think there are two um, ways to go from that, though. I mean, for instance, yeah. uh, if you take C.S. Lewis and, and his essay, Let Us Pretend, he was obviously mm-hmm. not saying, let us pretend there is a God, but mm-hmm. he was talking about what, what we would call the means of grace, attending to these things. For instance, in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's own context, that would mean going to worship, listening to the sermon, participating in the creed, singing the hymns. Knowing that, uh, even as belief is, uh, is, is called for at all times, we are incapable of being equally attentive at all times, much less uh, equally faithful. And, and so I hope that makes some sense. In other words, with C.S. Lewis, it wasn't so much about being able to do certain things so that you could believe that God is, is concerned with the color of your kitchen table, but rather C.S. Lewis was concerned with what it means to be uh, humbly acknowledging the fact that that what I bring in terms of belief at any given moment is actually less significant than the faithfulness of God in Christ to me eternally. Mm-hmm. I think there's also room to interpret Lewis as inviting you into a conversation you don't understand yet. It's and I and I see that elsewhere in in the book when he talks about well you know look if you're not a if you're a new Christian you may not understand this but this is the way it is and I think that this church treats him as in in that invitational way as somebody who is aware and in fact you could be describing an awareness of how little we know and how imperfect we are you can also see him as saying um, it's okay you know. Trust yourself even though you don't quite understand. One other key insight uh, in terms of your research is the congregational nature of evangelical faith and the fact that the role the congregation uh, played in terms of the life of these believers was was huge. In in fact, in your research, you suggest indispensable that uh, what what these Christians experienced in terms of their of their form of faith would have been impossible in a solitary experience, but it was facilitated by uh, you, you give a lot of detail about the the worship and uh, and and the fellowship and the practices even in the small groups uh, of the congregation. And I think what I saw is again coming back to the importance of the imagination representing God. There's this kind of an invisible being we see through a glass darkly. I think the congregation does an enormous amount of work in helping people to represent God for themselves. And so what I saw, in effect, is that as people came to imagine God, they would take, as, you know, in this very personal, intimate way, they sort of they took their, their best memories of relationships from, you know, the best part of their mom and the best part of their dad, and they sort of bound that together into a representation of who God was. 
And if they were lucky, you know, if they had good relationships with their mom or dad, that that, that was easier than if they had, they had tough relationships. Um, and then they would use the church, and they would use the sermons, and they would use the house group, and they would use their reading to reimagine and reimagine who this being was. And then when they were in conversation with that being, they were really sort of struggling to make themselves into a person appropriate for such conversation. And so I, I thought of it as a kind of mapping out and mapping back. So you map out of your own understanding of conversations into what a conversation with God should be like. And then they, they used the church to restructure their imagination in that conversation and then sought to be the person they wanted to be, they, they felt they should be, in the interaction. Um, and so I, I did... So. Yeah, so I thought it was, a, it was sort of an amazing process. One other issue I just have to ask you about, it's it's less present in your book than in some of your other writings, and that has to do with the distinction that uh, that the mode of spirituality you describe here is, uh, well, it comes easier to women than to men. And uh-huh. uh, you noted a very distinct gender difference. Go on and speak about that, please. So... I noticed that the people who are more able to engage in this sort of imaginative um, relationship, or a, a relationship in which you have to use your imagination because God is, is not available to the senses, um, were good at being caught up in their imagination. And there is a sort of a psychological tool that you can use to ask, you know, is this somebody who's comfortable getting caught up in their imagination? And women score more highly on that tool than men in general. Um, it's not a big difference. You know, it's it's like a one-point difference on a 34-point scale. But it's a pretty robust difference. Um, I find it again and again, and other people have seen this as well. And so I think what this tells me is not that men aren't able to use their imaginations. I think that we don't, as a society, encourage men to use their imaginations, that, you know, we know that women read novels more, um, that they are the, you know, they're more likely to be this, the, the readers of, of children's books to their kids. Um, I think that we allow women to feel comfort in the strength of their imagination, and, it's, and we don't give quite as much social room for men for that. And I think that that may be a cost to men, at least in this kind of spirituality. In your work, you're really speaking to the larger secular community. If uh, right now you're speaking to a largely evangelical uh, audience, uh, what would you say that we're missing about ourselves that you came across in terms of this research? What what self-knowledge do we need out of this project? I think the most important point is that that there's a learning process. And sometimes when I spoke to people at church who felt that they couldn't talk to God, they felt badly about themselves. They felt that they had somehow failed. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that it's better to think of these as capacities that could be trained and learned, that there are deliberate ways to learn them if they don't come easy. And uh, it's more helpful to think of these a relationship with God as a skill rather than um, as grace alone. Let me also ask, just because this project uh, really implies the question, what's next? Uh, After having studied witches and psychiatrists and evangelical Christians, where do you go from here? I'm interested in the way that different ways of imagining the mind and understanding your mind change your mental experience. And I'm, um, so the next step is to compare the way that people experience prayer and God and spirituality, um, not only in America, but also in Ghana and in Chennai. And there's another piece of my work in which I, I um, try to understand people whose a broken mind is not quite the right way way to phrase it. But people who struggle with uh, psychiatric illness and hear distressing voices, and I also want to compare their experience. I think that we may learn something about, or I may be able to bring something to the treatment of those who struggle from 
learning about the experience of prayer. I think one one of the most important things that I learned was how powerful and transformative prayer is. You know, from the, just the, from the perspective of the, psych, of the psychological anthropologist. So I, I'm not making a judgment about when God is present or when God is responding, but I do think the practice of prayer is uh, quite transformative, and I think we can learn from it uh, to help other people um, in their in their struggles. Professor Lerman, I can only imagine that uh, your students find your lectures captivating, and I know readers uh, are going to find and already have found this book to be fascinating. I want to thank you today for joining me for Thinking in Public. Well, thank you. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Having a conversation with an anthropologist is an experience unto itself, because you certainly have the experience of knowing that you're being observed even as you're in the midst of a conversation. But what a generous-hearted and skilled anthropologist we've been able to talk to today. Tanya Lerman is not only a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, she is not only a professor at Stanford University, she is someone whose generous heart and very curious mind have been combined in a book that really does demand our attention. My conversation with Tanya Lerman leads me to a rather humble acknowledgement. When we observe the kinds of research done by anthropologists, what we might call the anthropological perspective on others, we're all armchair anthropologists. We enter into that frame of mind. We find it fascinating and very intriguing to imagine why others believe what they believe and how those beliefs operate in their lives. When the tables are turned, it's a little more intellectually awkward. How exactly do we understand ourselves in terms of this anthropological perspective? One of the tools of anthropology is this kind of phenomenological observation. And that kind of phenomenology means that it draws very few judgments immediately about right and wrong, or for that matter, true and untrue, but rather just looks at what is in terms of observable behavior. And that's exactly what Professor Lerman does in this book. One of the things that comes to my mind immediately is that as we observe this kind of phenomenological or anthropological approach of others, it seems quite natural. On ourselves, it gets a little more uncomfortable. And furthermore, speaking as a confessional evangelical in this particular study, which is of a subset identified as evangelical here, in her research, she argues for a rather generous and broad understanding of evangelical. She places this vineyard congregation within it. She acknowledges that it is distinct from classical evangelicalism, but it's rather easy for me to take on my own anthropological perspective in terms of joining her in the observation of this congregation and its individuals who are indeed intriguing, certainly fascinating. It's easy for me to enter into that kind of anthropological frame of mind in terms of understanding what they believe and and why they believe, but the theologian in me is always close at hand, and so close at hand that my main reading in this book is inescapably theological. That leads me to the observation that Professor Lerman has actually done an exceedingly fine job of describing this massive theological shift that has taken place in the United States, especially over the last 30 or 40 years, or going back as long as to the 1960s, recognizing that something has fundamentally changed. The understanding of belief has changed. The understanding of God has been transformed into this user-friendly deity who is always well-disposed to us without reference necessarily to the cross of Christ, and who means to us to be an intimate partner such that, as Tanya Lerman has mentioned, and I can't help recalling, that God is interested even in the color of our kitchen table. The kind of conversation that takes place amongst Christians, the Christians he observed, and many Christians we know, about God's interest in the intimate details of their lives, she documents how this comes to be and and how it happens within the context of a congregation. The massive theological shift that has taken place here should be of significance to all evangelicals because nothing less than the knowledge of the one true and living God is at stake. The issue here, for us, cannot be merely anthropological. What is it that people believe? But theological, what is it that people should believe about God? And so we're going to read this book from a different perspective, but we're going to learn a lot as we go along. In documenting this massive theological shift, she makes very clear that it's not just about the change in the understanding of God proper, of of, of theism, and 
and the doctrine of God, but rather how that then progresses through other areas of both spirituality and theology to make a massive change. As I mentioned in the conversation with Professor Lerman, her insight that the whole notion of judgment has been transformed is key to our understanding of of where people are in terms of, of their perception of a need for a savior, of need for forgiveness, and of the final question of judgment. If you truly believe that it's not so much that God is going to judge us, but that we're judging ourselves and that God is already well disposed to us and all we have to do is join him in agreeing that we're, we're just okay, that's going to be a very different mode of theology. It's going to be a very different gospel in terms of how that supposedly is tied to the, the narrative of Jesus and what Jesus did for us and what God was doing for us in Christ. It's going to be a very different kind of understanding of the totality and not just of the parts. That's why the documentation of this massive theological shift is extremely helpful, not coming from a theologian at all, but coming from a psychological anthropologist. This is a confirmation from outside ourselves that something massive has happened. We haven't just been dreaming about this shift. The next key insight that I think comes from Professor Lerman's work is the understanding that the congregation really is important, and not just to the vineyard congregation that she was speaking to. The New Testament verifies the fact that we aren't meant to be individuals in terms of a solitary spiritual experience or just a solitary relationship with Christ. We are a part of the communion of the saints, and certainly inside the congregation, we understand that the health of of each one of us individually, and I would go on to say even the orthodoxy of individual Christians, needs the means of grace, and it needs the context of the congregation and the kinds of practices and experiences that the congregation has together. Lacking from much of the presentation in Professor Lerman's research is a congregation that depends upon the ordinary means of grace, the, the preaching of the Word of God, the, the fulfilling practice of, of the ordinances, the, the understanding of what it means as a congregation to be involved in a biblical definition of Christianity. Much of that has been supplanted, at least in terms of the presentation of her research, by a new spirituality based upon this, this rather beneficent and, uh, and certainly well-intended deity who seems to be less concerned about our sin and more concerned about Formica. That's a very different theological model, and of course, it implies a very different gospel. But the skill of looking at this is immensely important. And furthermore, the understanding that congregations begin to, to identify themselves theologically then makes more sense. A congregation that's going to produce the kind of people that were the subjects of Professor Lerman's research is going to be a congregation that is, uh, is clearly oriented theologically in terms of its life, its work, and its beliefs in order to produce that kind of spirituality. And, of course, the same thing be true of other congregations as well. Another major observation out of this research, quite frankly, is the limitations of a secular perspective into what cannot be reduced to a secular reality. Professor Lerman, by the way, in, in her own way, makes this very clear. She acknowledges that there are limitations to the, the intellectual experiment and the research that she is conducting. But as a confessing Christian, I have to look at this and say, there are essential issues that evangelical Christians understand to be central to the gospel that are simply missing from the entire picture here. We have to put those back in. We have to recreate a theological frame of reference in order to understand this. But even in so doing, we are reminded that there are anthropological insights that, uh, that are, just by God's common grace, helpful to us in this. For instance, let's go back to the use of C.S. Lewis here in his Let's Pretend. You look at that, and certainly those who are in the vineyard congregation that she describes are, are practicing that kind of mode in, in their own way. But for all of us, we need to recognize that there is a key insight there, and that the key insight there is that it takes us together involved in singing the hymns together, involved in hearing the Word of God preached together, involved in taking the table together and observing baptism together, to, to understand that this is exactly what it takes to make Christians. And when you look at research like this, it's very helpful to be able to step back and say, well, we know why that is so to a greater degree than an anthropologist is likely even to detect the question. But at the same time, there's a key insight here. There's an important insight for ecclesiology here. We ought to lean into it, even when it comes from an unexpected source. One of the last conversation points with Professor Lerman was very interesting to me, the distinction she makes between male and female approaches to, to this kind of spirituality. 
And one of the things that comes immediately to my mind here is that a church that leans into this kind of uh, implied intimacy with with God that implies that the normal Christian life is being marked by this kind of relationship with God, it is going to be attractive to women far more than attractive to men, which gets back to a very important insight of biblical Christianity, and that is that the truth resides in the objective truths of the faith. And that's why many of the churches right now that are growing, especially those that are growing with the presence of young men, they're growing because they lean into the unapologetic declaration of the objective truths of the faith, the truths that are true regardless of our emotional disposition. Men are emotional creatures too, but not to the extent that women are, as is documented here, not by someone who's writing about gender roles in the church, but by a psychological anthropologist who, looking outside, says the data's telling us something. That, too, is informative to us. A book like Tanya Lerman's, When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God, affirms our responsibility to read outside of our comfort zone in terms of literature and to read books that make us think about ourselves in ways we would never think if we were talking only to other believers. This kind of book is one that helps us in terms of critical thinking and entering into a very friendly, critical conversation. The exchange of ideas that we know matter not only for the academic community, not only in terms of understanding spirituality in a secular society, but for eternity. Many thanks again to my guest, Tanya Lerman, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to the release of my new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who demonstrate more than administrative skill and more than vision, leaders who are able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead, and otherwise, leaders who lead by conviction, driven by the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.